You're listening to My Unlived Life, a podcast about the path not taken. I'm Miriam Robinson. A few years ago, my life fell apart in pretty dramatic fashion, and I found myself feeling that somewhere I'd made a wrong turn. I suddenly felt very far from home and family and felt even farther from myself. I began to wonder, what if I had done things differently? We don't like to ask this question. It threatens to trap us in the past without a map back to the here and now. So I decided to make the map. Each episode, I interview someone about another course their lives could have taken. We begin at the point where their paths diverged and together, step by step, we imagine ourselves into the lives they never lived. Because these lives have a lot to teach us about ourselves if we let them. For this episode, I spoke to Mickey Berenyi. Mickey is a singer, songwriter, and guitarist. She's probably best known as a founding member of the alternative rock band Lush, darlings of the indie scene and Britpop in the late 80s and early 90s. She's currently part of Poroshka and lives in London. Her memoir, Fingers Crossed, How Music Saved Me from Success, is an incredible account of a trailblazing woman and a seminal band delivered with vivid, controlled storytelling and is available now in all good bookshops. When we spoke, Mickey and I discussed what would have happened if, as a child, when her mother and stepfather moved to Los Angeles, she had moved with them, as opposed to staying in London with her father. Along the way, we discussed making friends on the periphery, the roles we can fall into both in bands and in life, and why being a little indecisive can be a superpower. Hi, Mickey. Hi. Thank you so much for being here on My Unlived Life. Um, you're very welcome. I'm quite nervous. Oh, <laughs> it will be painless, I promise. It feels like deep therapy, but that's fine. That's <laughs> marginally my intention. Uh, we have a really interesting path that um, we're going to explore today, and I'm really looking forward to it because it feels quite um, a departure from the life you've actually lived. And um, what I love about our interview today is that we are here in part because of the release of your memoir, Fingers Crossed, um, which talks about the life you actually lived in incredible detail and is ranging from, I mean, we range back, you know, into the first half of the 20th century all the way up through today and your amazing experience and your time um, uh, in Lush and beyond. Um and I was just thinking about the title in particular in terms of what we're going to talk about today. And I'm just wondering if you could just say a bit about why you called it what you did um, and how it pertains to to what's inside the book. So I think the, I mean, the fingers crossed element is just simply, I think that's kind of how I've lived my life. You know, it's like chaos happens and you just hope you get through it. And then the um, how music saved me from success I'm not going to lie, I'm really bad with titles and our publisher was asking me for probably about three months and I was just, there's just an appalling list of terrible titles that were never used. And this was literally in the last batch of like, okay, I've completely lost patience with this, so I've just thrown that in there. And then, of course, that's the one that everybody liked because that's how yeah. it works. Um, but I think I quite like the sort of double meaning of, you know, like, you know, I mean, success being... Not that we were massively successful, but success being quite hard, but at least the music was always the thing that was the most important and stayed, you know, really positive, whatever other crap was going on. 
But equally, the other side that, you know, I kind of got sucked into music um, without really thinking about it. And there's an argument that had I, you know, pursued a different path, I might have been certainly wealthier, that's for sure. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And possibly more successful. Who knows? But, you know, I think it wasn't, you know, music and pursuing music was not a kind of, oh, this is going to make me rich and famous. Not on any level. Um, (laughs) Just as well, I didn't expect that from it because it's certainly not what happened. Well, and we talked as well about the sort of traditional, you know, the traditional definition of success and the traditional sort of sense of what it means to sort of be quote unquote successful just in a a sort of normal day job, climb up the ladder sort of way, um, which is so not what you did here. And I think everyone is happy that that's not what you did here in terms of your life, because we have so much amazing music to show for it and this memoir. But I think we're going to get a sense of of more of what's in the book as we go through and chat. But um, I think we should dive right in because we have some really interesting territory to cover. So can you, before we say what the path is and before we start down it, can you just give a little context? We're, we're, we're talking about a 12-year-old you and what you're what you're dealing with at that time before we change your path. Well, my mum had remarried, so I was living between my dad in London and my mum and stepdad Ray in uh, Windsor. And I had quite a settled life in Windsor. Um, and then Ray decided he was he'd been a stunt man, he was a TV director. He decided he wanted to go and work in America because he'd been out there and he Patrick McNee, who was in the Avengers, and he lived out in Palm Springs. So he actually hooked him up with some jobs. And he made like 10 times what he made in Britain. So he was totally dazzled by this and decided to move, you know, him and mum out to LA and go and live there and work there, which was, you know, I I struggled enough being separated from one or the other parent, even when they were living in different cities. But for mum to be living 6,000 miles away was quite traumatic for me. And my dad was not willing to let me go and put his foot down. And, you know, his story was that, uh, that he took me to see a lawyer and, you know, I was forced to make a decision of where I wanted to live And so I stayed with my dad and I would go and visit my mum during the summer holidays and Christmas. And um, but I missed her a lot. You know, it's very difficult to have her so far away. And I didn't, you know, therefore, in those sort of key moments of adolescence, didn't have a mother around. So I was, you know, and at my dad's, it was quite a feral existence. So. I didn't have that kind of guidance, whether it's even just makeup and hair or even looking presentable, but even periods and kind of, you know, boys and sex and all of that stuff. So it was, you know, I kind of was left to my own devices with that. And I didn't do a particularly great job of it either. (laughs) <laughs> to be honest. Well, I don't I don't know what 12-year-old can do a particularly great job of it. You described it as a feral environment at your dad's. Can you say a little bit more about what that looked like? You describe it so beautifully in the book and heart-wrenchingly, really. I loved my dad so much. Um, it's partly why I chose to stay with him. Um, but he was a quite a reckless and sort of, you know, he was a womanizer. He was um 
he was never kind of a drinker or anything like that, but he was just impulsive and reckless and did what he wanted to do and would often drag me along on these adventures, which sometimes was really good fun, but probably largely inappropriate. You know, his house was collapsing from neglect. He had his kind of Nazi grand, well, my Nazi grandmother, his mother, who was clearly, I mean, she was an alcoholic. I didn't even realise that till I grew up. But, you know, she was quite a dark presence and had, you know, abused me sexually. And it was, you know, there was a sort of, there was a kind of malevolence in that house, but there was also a lot of chaos and energy, I have to admit. (laughs) You know, there were some really good fun times and there were no rules. I could stay up all night. I could eat what I wanted. I could come and go as I pleased. Um, But it was, it was filthy and squalid and, um, frankly, quite crazy. In the book, I think that you do the most phenomenal job of balancing that darkness and and crazy with the kind of light and energy and potential that it's gotten there. I mean, I, I, I mentioned this before. I think your description of sexual abuse is just incredibly well done if you can say that it's just it's it's very straight and it's very clear and it's not flowery and it's not sort of glossed over um and i can't imagine how challenging that must have been to write and then as you say you have the kind of raucous energy that clearly funnels itself directly into your music and the way you approach the music scene and all of that and it's i can imagine it's quite hard to disentangle the good from the bad. Absolutely. I think the difficulty with writing about the abuse was, was, I mean, not so much revealing it because I have talked about it, you know. I mean, I played some Lush songs the other night at the launch and I realised that, oh, my God, it's all there in the lyrics. It's actually mm. there, like, you know, in detail. Um, so it's not like I hadn't kind of confronted it before, but it's difficult to write about because... I'm aware that, you know, other people may have suffered their own version of things. You know, you get through these things your own way. And I didn't want to sort of make it a kind of template for, you know, people who, you know, I think I think people who have suffered abuse suffer enough for having the wrong kind of abuse or the wrong kind of reaction. Mm. And so I think I just wanted to make it clear that this was very much my thing. I think that there will other, be other people who experience similar things who will relate to that. That's I, that's what it feels like. It feels like a, a very clear description, which I think um, is probably harder than it looks. Against the backdrop of this, obviously, we have your parents presenting you with uh, a big decision, which is whether or not to move to LA with your mother, which is a big decision for any 12 year old to make. It wasn't a straightforward question. You loved them both. You wanted to be with them both. So I can imagine that was really difficult for you. I think I must have blotted a lot of that out because funnily enough, it was one of the harder parts of the book to write because I actually couldn't remember. Mm. You know, I got quite confused while I was writing it trying to sort of marry up dates and things. And so actually it's really confusing. My mum doesn't even remember the details. Uh, personally, I think she's probably blocked them out a bit as well because it wouldn't be surprising to me that that was quite a difficult period. And what I do remember is, you know, I did get very badly bullied at school. So I moved schools at that point to a different school in Windsor. And I now realise that, well, obviously I kind of lost my 
you know, ability to sort of navigate quite a tough playground because I knew what was coming. I knew that there was going to be this wrench. I remember going over to America when they first moved there, my mum trying to sort of dazzle me with all these temptations, you know, to encourage me. I actually had a friend of hers who had two daughters and I remember going to Tammy's school for a day, some private girls school in, I don't know where, in LA somewhere. It was very nice, but, you know, she was clearly trying to push me towards this. We went like surfing at Malibu and, you know, I was whipped around kind of Disneyland and Magic Mountain. So it was really this sort of look at this wonderful life you could have here, you know. But I didn't like my stepdad. He already had like five children that he'd abandoned. And, you know, having moved us from London to Windsor and now to L.A., I really did feel like, well, who's to say? He's chucked away five kids already, you know. I mean, uh, this is quite a risky proposition. And my mum, bless her, you know, was kind of, you know, a good Japanese girl who centred her man. And, you know, because in a way she didn't have to move. I mean, it was her money that moved them out there. You Mm. know, that's the irony. And my kind of annoyance with her that I did think, well, you didn't have to do this, did you? because he was relying on you financially to actually make it possible, or certainly her parents who were wealthy. So I think she, you know, knowing that that she would always be a kind of satellite around whatever man she was with, that wasn't really going to work for me, not with someone like Ray, who I felt was very willful and selfish himself, and I didn't feel was going to look out for me because he didn't with his own children. I mean, that kind of thought process at at age 12, it's just, it's just a a huge amount to have to consider. And it it really orients you towards others in a way that is, I guess, different from the experience of a lot of kids who are just profoundly selfish and thinking mostly about their own experience. Selfish, not in a bad way. I mean, I think children are allowed, you know, they should be allowed to be selfish. They should not, not have to think about those things. But I think from, you know, the time when my parents split when I was four, I did have to think about that stuff quite a lot. It was always, I mean, some, like I say, some of it was great. You know, I went to Japan, I went to LA, I went to Hungary. I had these amazing kind of, you know, experiences, but there wasn't a lot of predictability. In fact, there was none. Because <laughs> <You know? laughs> my mum would vanish off on acting gigs. My dad would go away on press trips. So I didn't know, you know, he would be like, yeah, 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 I'll be back in two weeks. And then it was three months. You know, they weren't incredibly hostile with an with each other they still communicated but I just didn't know from one minute to the next when I was going to see either one of them Mm. I think we're going to create a slightly different scenario for you and see what that ends up feeling like if that's all right yes absolutely great we're going to go back to that moment where there was um a question as to where you're going to live your mom wanted you to be with her your dad wanted you to be with him And we're just going to say that your mom, uh, instead of leaving it up to you, your mom insists that you come with her and she makes it happen. So you're 12 years old and she says, nope, I'm not, I'm not leaving you behind. I'm moving to LA and you're coming with me. That feel right. Okay. I'm, I will try and get my head around that. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So first off, because as you say, your parents were able to communicate, what kind of deal do they set up? What's the sort of structure? Because you do, you are going to want to see your dad. You are going to want to be in touch with him. 
I know that like American schools have way longer in the summer for holidays. Yes, know? yes, they so do. So I probably would have had like a sort of fair old stretch, you know, and been able to spend quite a lot of time with him, I think. I mean, the difficulty would have been is, you know, I always really appreciated the fact, however traumatic it was, that he really held on to me because it was you know, I've certainly met enough people now who are my age whose fathers didn't do that. You know, they remarried, they had other children. Some of them were actually very brutal with their children and were were kind of rejected them. And were like, well, I've got a new family now, so I can't be bothered with you. And the fact that my dad never did that meant an enormous amount to me because however selfish he was, and he may have even done that for selfish reasons, but, you know, he... You know, I genuinely felt loved and I genuinely felt needed. So that stabilised a lot of the kind of chaos. So I think it would have been, you know, so I don't think I would have lost touch with him. I think I would have missed him terribly. I do think that, I actually think that possibly without me there, he would have shipped Nora off, that mad Nazi Nora. He might have shipped her off a long ago. Like I do think... It was like we were kind of meant to look after each other while he could kind of come and go as he pleased. Oh, that's without, interesting. Without me there to balance the mania and the neediness of Nora herself. It was a bit two birds, one stone, you know what I mean? Because obviously I was a kid, so he needed someone there if he was going to vanish off for months and go off and shag loads of women or whatever. <laughs> but at the same time, you know, it kind of was like, oh, here's the solution. I'll bring my mother over. Um, she's, you know, and they can kind of occupy each other's time, which would have been fine if she hadn't have been completely nuts, an alcoholic and a child abuser. Well, let's figure it out. Let's let's get you to L.A. and we'll we'll check in on your dad in a minute. Um, so you go to L.A. and you're living and they've bought a house, presumably somewhere delightful. And you have your own room there. You've got a space there that's yours. They moved to Hollywood Boulevard. Like, like the it's sort of in the Hollywood Hills. It's like the last house in Hollywood Boulevard. So Hollywood Boulevard, you know, like LA, it's sort of huge, sprawling long roads, but it actually winds up into the Hollywood Hills and is kind of up there with Sunset Plaza Drive and stuff. So they had this big house. Ray was a real collector of antiques and, you know, every surface, every wall space was covered in just, you know, bits and pieces and you know he was quite snobby about it I mean he was from a very working class background and full credit to him he'd you know wrenched himself out of that and made a life for himself that was actually quite glamorous but he was very hung up on class as a lot of you know British people are you know still and was trying to reinvent himself as some sort of you know, I don't know, some blue blood, you know, he would literally put on a voice and almost make up a past. And, you know, they'd have like, I remember these sort of portraits on the wall that he would kind of half joking tell visitors were his ancestors. But And they but, weren't his ancestors. Oh, God, <laughs> of course, no. Like there was some French aristocrat, God <laughs> knows, you know what I mean? And I mean, there was a point where, when I started dressing a bit more punky and stuff, I mean, he literally said to me, I can't walk down the street with you. 
you're gonna have to you're gonna have to walk on the other side of the pavement and I was like that's fine suits me I think you look like a fucking dick as well so (laughs) you know him with his sort of ridiculous kind of color-coded rainbow of suits from Rodeo Drive and a neck full of bling and his sort of hairy chest and you know and so and now and now we've got you in a situation where you're actively in Ray's home in your mom's home and but you're still very much you and you're still very much um you still very much know your own mind and so let's see how it plays out where do you go to school uh, I probably would have gone to that school that my friend Tammy was at. Um, and I wish I could remember the name, actually. It was a girls' school. Where are we Where are we now? Are we still in the late 70s or are we in the 80s? I think we're like early, early 80s. Yeah, like, like 80, 81 okay. kind of time. Um, but yeah, they, they seemed very sweet. Um, and I probably would have, you know, there were friends I had like Tammy's family, who I'm still in touch with, they were a really stabilizing influence. You know, they I spent a lot of time with them and they were just um, smart, quite religious, actually. That was always a bit of a shocker for me. I do remember going around and forgetting that they say grace, you know, just tucking into the food and think, oh, God, <laughs> sorry, you know. But her dad was kind of lovely, you know. But it depends, you know, because I think that Ray was so snobby and status obsessed that you know I don't know if that school would have been good enough for him do you know what I mean because he liked to sort of brag his accomplishments and we were all meant to fit in with you know this image that he was kind of constructing. In that case do you stay at the same school as Tammy or do you go to a Zhizhi private school or something? I don't know. I don't know what Zhizhi private schools are like in LA, really. That was my one experience of going to some school. But, you know, I do know that Ray was part of, obviously, you know, in Hollywood, part of that kind of, you know, TV studio environment. And I don't know whether he would have wanted, again, to slightly use that to sort of put me into some school where other studio bosses sent their kids so he had a bit of an in with them do you know what I mean I wouldn't bloody put it past well let's decide what do you think um oh that's a difficult fork okay let's go with it because it might be quite funny all right (laughs) it's basically Hogwarts in LA whatever it is (laughs) I mean I suspect that if I'd have gone you know at the time when I was 12, I mean, I was uber geek That's at right. that point, you know, glasses, you know, terrible haircut that Nora had probably <laughs> given me um, and, you know, acne and bad teeth and the lot, you know. So I'm trying to imagine me sailing into some fancy Hollywood school and would have been instantly an outcast because I didn't have any of the sophistication and kind of you know dental work that most of those kids would have had I probably would have been quite surly and defensive but having said that you know I did learn I had already been to several schools at that point and I was used to you know my past was was that I had gone to like you know, different primary schools. I'd gone to, you know, a school in Windsor that was a state school. Then I went to a private school that was in, you know, it was a convent. I'd gone to like 
state schools in London. I'd been to like, you know, I mean, Hampstead, New End was like a, a state school, but it was in Hampstead, you know. So I was kind of used to changing, you know, my accent. I'd been to school in Labrook Grove that was rough as houses, but it was a girls' school. And, you know, there it was like fights and kind of, you know, whatever. But I did learn to fit in in places. You know, I did sort of have this sort of period where it would be like I would be such a fish fish out of water, not least because I was moving midterm usually and everyone else knew each other. But it would take me a couple of months, but I'd figure out, okay, I see what I have to do. This is how I get popular. This is how I fit in. This is what I change in the way I talk or the way I look. And so it's likely that I would have, you know, gone through a sort of difficult period. Okay, so what does that mean? What does playing this particular game look like? I mean, I suspect it would have been, you know, I was never someone who particularly, you know, wanted to be friends with the A-list. So very, very kind of obnoxious and confident people kind of pissed me (laughs) off. The peripheries are always so much more interesting you know, those people in the middle of it who are the movers and the shakers, they're often kind of very uninteresting people because they're so solipsistic anyway. You know, it's not really where close friendships and meaningful relationships are forged. You know, you're having to sort of, you know, if you make friends with those people, you're having to make friends with their entire image as well. It's very difficult to break through that. Whereas people on the periphery may be more guarded and it's a slower thing to get to know them because trust is an issue. But they tend to be more rewarding relationships because there is that trust and there is that quietness and there is a sort of, well, I'll tell you this, but don't tell anyone because I'm slightly ashamed. And you know, that is a better relationship. And those are the relationships I'm drawn to. So I don't necessarily think of that as a bad thing. I think it's a great signal, actually. I mean, to me, it's a red flag. Someone who's blaring their opinions and is like the centre of attention and really thinks they're the bee's knees and self-describes as a great bloke or like, I'm just such a lovely person. That is a clear sign that you want to run in the opposite direction. You're not you're not kind of hanging out with those kids. Who are you, who do you... running running with you're the running crowd? With no, not 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 my bag. Good, I'm really. glad. So who is it? So, well, I just think you know. I mean, I was quite bookish. I did. I was quite academic. You know, I did like school and I liked school work. So I think that I probably would have got in with people who were similar, really. You know, and I I was drawn to people who had quite stable family lives. Like, weirdly, I didn't find so much connection with, you know, you'd think that you would find other kind of lost people and those would become your friends. But I think I was just too lost myself. So a lot of the kind of boyfriends I got throughout my life, a lot of the friends I made, I was very attracted to the fact that they were from like Chris, you know, I mean, the most idyllic, you know, two brothers, like parents together, family holidays, you know. Just say briefly who Chris is, just in case. I mean, any fan of Lush will know, but just in case. So Chris was the drummer in Lush, but I met him when I was at college and became friends before he was, you know, that. And, And then I went out with him and I was his girlfriend for about a year. So, you know, 
I visited his family a lot. And I think because I was always searching, my family was so fragmented and all over the place that 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 really appealed to me. And um, I think not not kind of stiff families. I mean, there were people, there were a lot of people I met in my sort of childhood whose parents were aghast that their girls were like friends with me because I was just seen as a terrible influence I mean, with some good reason, I'll admit. I mean, that's just such a wonderful thing, isn't it? To to be able to orient towards people who are good for you. So you find some sort of fellow bookish buddies. You're doing well at school. I mean, presumably it's quite a good school. I mean, we're going to hope that at least like the education is solid given all this money that your mom and Ray are shelling out for it. Anything in particular academically that you're taken by or that you get into? You've got, see if you're 12. I mean, the thing about America is that 12 isn't high school yet. So you're in middle school. Oh, okay. Is there anything in particular that that is grabbing you, whether that's extracurricular, whether that's because obviously part of uh, the development of you as a musician was being in this London scene. But um, I'm just wondering what sort of seeds we're planting for your development here. Are you are you playing an instrument? Are you writing? Are you a history nerd? What's happening? I mean, English was always my thing, and I liked. You know, I was a diary writer, so I kind of, I think um, I would have gone down the sort of arts route much more than the science route. Um, I think, you know, academically, I always did fine, actually. Um, I don't know, you know, a lot of the kind of mess ups that I made were because of the very disruptive life I had and the need to sort of, you know, get away from that malevolence at home, which is where my sort of education started tanking and taking second place. And who's to say if I'd have been in a more stable environment that um, I would have done a lot better. And actually, although at Queen's, one of the problems was that, I couldn't match the wealth. None of us could, actually, Emma, all of us. We kind of bonded as a group of friends because we just couldn't match the sort of wealth of a lot of the girls who were there. You know, we were a bit reject. And I suspect that the same would have happened at some glitzy place because for all of Ray's pretensions, you know, he wasn't like in the realms of some of these people who clearly have like, you know, second homes in the Caribbean and all sorts of private planes and God knows what. So quite possibly my experience wouldn't have been a million miles from what it had been at Queen's in terms of like, well, it's all very well you sending me to the school, but I can't actually keep up, can I? Because you don't actually have the wealth. There is a chance, I think, that I would have been I'm going to use a really crap template because I don't know much about American schools, but that kind of breakfast club thing, I can imagine being the sort of, you know, grumpy sort of weird girl who appallingly gets converted oh. at the end, which I could never forgive. Nobody, that. Get, no, anybody like, with any sense was always <laughs> like, but she looked so much better before. She looked so much better before. What is that makeover at the end of breakfast club? And I think it would have been hard to iron out the, you know, that side of me 
And, you know, because also I'd be going back to Hungary and I'd be being with my dad. So that kind of and also because Ray was the one who was so obsessed with wealth and that, which also automatically made me reject it. You know, I'm always like quite happy to leave a party that I'm not welcome at. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Like I'm not going to sit there tugging on people's coattails and be satisfied with crumbs from the table. I'll be like, do you know what? It's fun. I'll find my own bloody scene. Um, the thing I always worried about was in America, it's just so quite druggy. I was never really a drug taker. You know, they, I mean, they just weren't really available in Britain on the level that they are now. But also it never, it was, it didn't really do me. I didn't seem to enjoy it in the way others did because I'm quite an anxious person anyway. And taking drugs just made me like 50 times more anxious. <laughs> Even just smoking weed, I'd be like, oh my God. I think, have I just wet myself? <laughs> it feels a bit warm. I don't know. Or have I just gone to the toilet? Have I just got back from the toilet? Like, I, I'd be so beset with anxiety. It had the opposite effect on me, you know. And and so I'm not sure I would have gone down that tunnel. Let's think it through real quickly. It sounds like probably not, but you're in this super fancy school. So obviously you've got this hierarchy and you've sort of rejected it and you've, you're still a little bit punk and a little bit cool. You're certainly on the peripheries, which is where you prefer to be at the school. But I guess what I'm thinking about is the one kind of significant thing is that, that I think, well, one significant thing is that uh, this big decision, which you had to make as a 12 year old was made for you. And so somebody kind of actively parented in that moment. And so whether or not you're enjoying it, whether or not you're liking it, you you aren't living with any sense of feeling like uh, maybe you should have done something else. I think because of already how much disruption I'd had to deal with, there really wasn't much time for regret in my life. <laughs> it was just, right, this has happened. This is how things are. That's it. You just got to keep, get back on your feet and keep up with what's happening because there's going to be something else right around the corner, right? There's no time to sit there thinking of what could have been because another thing is literally on the horizon. Even in the bleakest moments of having stayed with um, my dad, um, no, I know, I, I never once thought, God, I really messed up there. I should have done that. Not once. So um, I think that if I had gone down that route and, you know, even gone along with it willingly and and thought, okay, that's the decision I'm making. Mum's making the decision for me, but I am going to go with that. I think that I would have just made the best of it. Having said that, I would have really been missing my dad. I probably would have been stressing if he'd have met someone else, that he might have another child, that that I might get replaced um, I don't think he would have been able to give me the reassurance that I needed, which was fucking daily, let's face it. I think I would have had quite a lot of anxiety about, you know, my dad and whether, you know, having moved away from him, that I might lose him altogether. Um, and I would have missed him loads. I think reappearing after many months, you know, when you're growing so much and your life is so separate... You know, it is a bit like you are a bit strangers and that can feel quite sad. Your ideas have changed, you know, and I think that that would have worried me a lot. Um, would your ideas have changed? Do you feel like your ideas are changing over there in L.A.? There's a 
high chance that I would have, you know, uh, had, I don't know, you know, opinions and kind of, um, I don't know, you know, sort of been, yeah, maybe even politically, you know, I was quite biddable in a way. You know, I can imagine going to some school and them some sort of indoctrinating you with, you know, God and kind of, you know, America's the greatest country in the world and blah, 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 and possibly sort of, you know, thinking, okay, well, this sounds pretty good. I'll fit in with that if that's what you want. I mean, God knows when I went to a bloody convent, you know, I read the frigging Bible from cover to cover trying to find Jesus, you know. I mean, admittedly, it didn't happen, so maybe it wouldn't have done, but... But I I would have given it a crack, you know what I mean? So let's, I, I think, I just want to think a little bit more about who you're becoming over in high school. And then I do think we want to check in with your dad and see what's going on with him and make sure. I mean, to be honest, even if I had bought into some of that stuff, I can imagine talking about it to my dad and him just going, oh, come on, that's horse shit. Like, <laughs> <laughs> you know, not going with it in any, not thinking, okay, well, she's she's growing to into this person and let's respect that and support it. No, he would have been like, what absolute bollocks. I can't believe you're even buying into this, which would have had an influence on me and made me sort of rethink, you know, whether it's trying to fit in with Britpop and become some sort of, you know, ladder or whether it's trying to be, you know, Emma's best friend in the world or whatever, you know what I mean? And failing at that miserably, you know what I mean? Because there's a point at which I reach a point of tolerance and I go, actually, this is absolute nonsense. Like, I'm not doing it. And it would feel like a failure on my part at the time, but I literally couldn't control that. And you feel like um, you feel like that's your dad's sort of voice a little bit in you, just going, nah, nonsense. Yeah, because I think ultimately he was quite um he was very single minded you know he wasn't he had his opinions and he was unswerving in that you know and he you know loved his friends and he could be passionate about things i'm not saying he was totally rigid you know there were kind of political arguments you could have with him where he would discuss things but he was a very thinking person i do think i inherited that because it was that kind of well you need to think about what you're trying to fit in with here and does it make any sense? And that has made me quite wishy-washy in later life. You know, I did, I have always been someone who weighs up and consider, I mean, I'm saying it as though it's a bad thing. I don't think it's a bad thing, but I'm always quite sort of, I, I have sort of envied people who are, you know, people like Emma actually, you know, who are quite solid in what they think of how the world works and how they fit into it. But at the same time, I do think I had quite a self-preservation. I would get into trouble, but I knew how to get out of that trouble as well mm. and deal with it because I'd had to do that quite a lot in life. You know, when you hear some podcast about like, you know, people who join a cult or something <laughs> and I just think, no, that's not me. It it wouldn't have been. And I'm not saying that in a kind of I'm too clever. It's just that I'd had already a past of being, you know, being subsumed and rejecting, subsumed and rejecting, constantly moving. And I don't think I could have got swallowed by something, whether it's a group of friends at school, whether it's, you know, religion, whether it's Ray's kind of status obsession I just don't think that I ever bought into things wholesale in that way. I was always questioning them. Mm. 
um, because I'd always had two sides to my life. I'd always had mum and dad and, you know, a, a two completely contrasting experiences that I wanted to hold on to both of them. I didn't want to reject either, which meant having to balance things all the time. Which really, I mean, given... I don't want to be too sort of grand, but like given today's extremely polarized universe, I just think like the ability to hold two sides of something is like a superpower. I'm conscious we haven't gotten you out of high school yet. So I feel like we need to do that. So what it sounds like is, well, let's go back and just first off, I want to just know like, how's life at home? So you're, you've got some little group of friends that's, you know, off on the edges you're definitely alternative. You haven't gone, you're not doing synthetic drugs. You're not sort of, um, you're not sort of dealing at the edge of Rodeo or anything like that, but you're doing well in school. Presumably you're, you're doing well in English. You're writing in your diary. How are things with your mom and Ray? So in, in real life, they split up when I was about 16 or 17. And that's very likely to have happened. My mom was always financially, fine you know she had that kind of muscle so I think we would have been all right okay and we would have had you know a place to live I mean unfortunately the next partner she got was even worse than Ray so it's quite possible that I would have had a pretty bad time with him but given that we're talking about sort of 17 18 there's a chance that it would have been like right I'm going to go off to college and I'm going to get the hell away from here and you know they certainly would have had the finances to send me somewhere pretty fancy, I suppose. And I do think I would have got, I would have got, you know, some artsy kind of, you know, English and art and and music and whatever the hell, you know. I mean, weirdly, I wasn't like, I, I wasn't musically trained, so I wouldn't have been able to compete with, you know, people from LA who had had like private lessons since they were four or whatever. But I think in terms of like doing English and and art. Would you have done any music while you were in your fancy high school? I mean, I might have done if I'd have met the right people. I'm sure that there were. I do think LA had quite a thriving kind of band scene. Um, and, and I do think there was, you know, obviously a kind of punk rock underground as well. I'm not sure how much that married up with private fucking Hollywood schools mm. in LA, it sounds more to me from what I, I've kind of heard is more of a sort of underbelly and people coming from out of town, actually, and being new arrivals at there and forming bands and, you know, doing that kind of thing. So I, it's, what do you think? Do you think you find some route into that scene? Or do you think that it's just too foreign and you go to Sarah Lawrence or something? That is a really difficult one. Because I was so... You know, I think I think because so much of the direction my life took was down to the people who happened to come along at the time, you know, or the decisions my parents made, that I needed a catalyst, you know, is what I'm saying. So if I'd have got in with a group of girls, you know, at my school and they were all off to some college, you know, I'd have been like, great, we're all going to go together. And do you know what I mean? And I would have embraced that. Whereas if I had been kind of slightly rejected in that group or found some, you know, kids that were really into music and 
and you know that world um I probably would have jumped ship in that direction or you know I mean I still think I would have gone to college it just it's just that I might have gone to UCLA and carried on you know what I mean mm. if I was in with a scene I would have you know, wanted to still be part of that. So let's just say that, that I would have thought, all right, okay, that's the compromise. You know, I can still say, stay local. I can still kind of have my sort of outside school scene and and pursue being in music or whatever. Is it possible that you've met somebody who's got some solid connections in the music world? Like, is there a, or have you gone like, have you gone pure punk and you don't want any of those connections? Or is there somebody who can actually open some doors for you? I had this friend Heidi, who um, again still friends with, who I met. Funny enough, when me and Emma went to LA together and had a holiday, and we met her outside this gig, um, where oh god, that's right, me and Emma had gone into like a liquor store and bought some side or some beer, and then a like two policemen came along and made us pour it all in the floor and we were like <gasps> they had guns and everything and we didn't realize you had to be 21 how old were you 18 i think because right. we were going we're 18 it's fine actually i'm not sure if we were 18 i think we might have been 17 but i remember getting in with her and we would i was a real letter writer as well so we would write to each other and she would sort of send me tapes of these bands that she was seeing but it was quite um like you know, sort of big hair, slightly rock, which was just not really my thing. Whereas I remember the gig we met at, it was a band called the Hollywood Hillbillies. And I think headlining was some punk band, but I remember the Hollywood Hillbillies because there was a girl playing bass, Fur Dixon, who ended up playing in the Cramps, right? And she would play the bass on stage and they had like a a perch with like a rooster on it. What? <laughs> and it was sort of slightly hillbilly punk music. It was amazing. It's one thing that I that I love so much about your memoir is is your recounting of all of the different bands and all of the different like your memory feels just photographic in terms of just like who was in what and who moved from what band to what band and which journalists were covering who. And it's just the most amazing chronicle of that period of time in music. So I would like to think that I would have met a kind of like-minded bunch of people who were seeing bands, you know, the kind of Motley Crue stories and all of that sort of stuff. I think there were plenty who were just totally not that, you know, and were doing their own thing. And and in a funny way, you know, lot, quite a lot of women who were, I think, you know, reading like even Kathy Valentine's book, you know, about the Go-Go's, like just sort of rocking up in LA. Lots of people kind of gravitated there and women in bands did and they kind of... Do you know what I mean? It wasn't just a a load of kind of male rock stars and then a load of groupies. I do think that there was a kind of place for women to sort of bond and actually have their sort of voice. And so what do you think you're doing in this world now? Because it's you're sort of 18, 19, you know, you're you're studying at UCLA, you're going to a bunch of gigs, you've found some people who are similarly into this um have you are you forming a band or are you just observing I think if I'd have formed a band I would have had to meet someone who was um you know as ambitious and driven and clear-minded as Emma um I was always like good in a supporting role 
You know, I was good as the sort of the person who who will do the can do bit. So, you know, when Emma wanted to kind of form a band, I was the one that got Chris and Mariel and Steve in. Like, well, I'll just ask them. And I think if I'd have met the right person, which quite possibly I might have done, um, I would have been someone who would have just jumped on board and you know once you're on board you just try and make things happen don't you well I do anyway but I think you do (laughs) yeah and we were competitive I'm not going to say that I was just some sap who was you know willing to sort of you know sit there and be in the oh don't mind me I'm just here for the ride you know of course I had a bloody ego about it of course I wanted recognition as well but I think you know I think in relationships, you know, you do end up in a role, you know, and it's very difficult when the landscape around you shifts and that role gets sort of transformed a bit. So I don't know. I mean, I imagine if I'd have gone to live in America and, you know, in this sort of imaginary world where I've found people who are part of a kind of L.A. scene, you know, I don't know if I would have found problematic relationships with, uh, you know, I I suspect it would have been another woman. I do think, you know, I was, I was so crap at relationships. I was so messed up that as much as I would love to think that I would have fallen in love with some guy and we'd have formed a band together and, and cause it's always easier with a bloke in the band. I've got to say, um, that that would have worked out. But I suspect that I would have not have been able to hold down the relationship. And, you know, that in itself might have caused problems. Um, Then again, I've stayed I've stayed friends with most of my boyfriends. So, you know, who knows? Well, let's think. Do you think there's a guy around this time? There's always a guy around. (laughs) (laughs) Dime a dozen. (laughs) Well, they're lovely, you know. They are lovely. Um, but I think I always needed that, you know, kind of, you know, a romance in my life was, was I was just no good at being without that, really. Um, and there's probably all sorts of Freudian readings in that, to do with my dad or, you know, even being, you know, abused where, you know, sex becomes quite a different different thing you know it becomes cheapened I suppose it becomes something that you use rather than an end in itself mm. you know um as currency if you like currency for attention and closeness and absolutely yeah yes rather than the closeness coming first and then that becoming a kind of culmination of it it's yeah so I think I don't know. I think I probably would have still been quite promiscuous because that damage was already done, Mm. frankly. And I always wanted, you know, and and like I say, being separated from my dad, I would have wanted someone who felt was mine. I think with with romances, you can just get completely subsumed. And I did crave that. So it's highly likely that, that that would have been another route into, you know, I probably would have fucked everyone on some scene, you know what I mean, and eventually settled on someone who <laughs> was <laughs> was tolerant enough to put up with me. 
I want to ask two questions. One is where are you living? Because you're studying at UCLA. So in principle, you could stay at home, but maybe not. Maybe you feel like getting an apartment or something. I wasn't bad at picking the right people to move in with. You know, again, that kind of radar for, you know, I didn't live with people who were crazy or absolute drug addicts or, you know, I mean, they were messy and they were kind of mad in their own way, but in a lovely way. Um, irresponsible and that but hey you know you're young it's fine mm. so I'm sure I would have had you know different house moves with different people and but that's kind of that that happens doesn't it you know I, d- I mean I wouldn't have like met some guy and got married I can tell you that okay that's <laughs> that was never gonna happen <laughs> who who are you living with and who are your girlfriends we've got we've got a a, a sort of parade of men let's say oh I was very quick to move in with men okay like it was a great you know way out and you know it just made it very problematic if I like started sleeping with other people you know that would be quite tricky which you did then, sometimes right you, which I did yeah. sometimes and how yeah. did the men handle that that you well, were living not great with? obviously <laughs> how do they feel about that you know after I met you know there were there were plenty of really lovely blokes I went out with but you know how it works you know you think they're the one and then you know, they're not perfect and you're not, you know, you're not kind of heart beating fast every time they walk in a room. And my, you know, I couldn't convert, you know, lust and that kind of overwhelming romance into a stable relationship that grows into something else because I just didn't know how you make that happen. I'd never seen, I had no example from my parents of actually putting in that kind of work and um, sticking with a relationship because it's important, which meant that as soon as the kind of first sort of gloss of everything being overwhelmingly wonderful wore off, um, I don't really know how to sort of move on with that and, and make it, you know, more solid. So, I would just, you know, I'd suddenly meet someone else and then think, oh, they're the one, you know, and I was constantly chasing this perfection and thinking, oh, you know, maybe I made the wrong decision. Maybe maybe the right one is round the corner, you know, and then they're the person I should be with. And so I'd kind of, you know, I, I was never clean. I could never leave and then think, oh, let's find someone else. I was always like, I mean, what did Julie Birchall say? It was like, well, you don't get out of the bath until the central heating's on, do you? you know? It's like, <laughs> That's that a was great the kind of... <laughs> so, you know, it was that kind of serial relationships and romances and whatever. And and it took me quite a while to, um, you know, my diaries are full of of like, oh, God, why am I doing this? I love him so much. He's such a great bloke. What's wrong with me? So it's not like I was just carefree and, you know, footloose. I was troubled by it and upset by it and couldn't understand what I was even doing to myself, you know, and to this person who I genuinely really cared about and was hurting. Mm. Like, um, But I just wanted to you know, some perfect man to come along as a package and then everything would just be fine and I wouldn't have to think about it. So it's a very long time to realise that that's not how it works. And what, I mean, what presumably in your current, with your current partner, Moose, and your kids, like somehow you figured out how it works. Like how did you figure out how it works? Did something shift? 
I think having children, I think children made a huge difference because I think when I was trying to just manage my own self and my own desires and my own problems, um, it was always very tempting to jump ship and just stop agonising about it by going to the next set of open arms and and just too much too much to deal with let's let's just start again let's just try again and children stop you from doing that because it's like well there's no starting again and whatever you do now is going to impact that other person for the rest of their lives and so you need to think really really seriously about what the hell you're doing now and it was good for me you know it centered me and it made me able to just not think of you know, my parents and boyfriends and people who just come in and out of your life because it's a choppy sea and you're thrown in whatever direction. It's children and you have a role in their lives that is completely irreplaceable. There's no second chances there. You know, I'm not for a minute suggesting that people should stay in unhappy marriages for the sake of their children. That in itself is a valid decision to leave because it's unhappy and make sure that they get the best upbringing possible, you know. Um, And so, you know, back in our imaginary world, I do imagine that, you know, I'm sure I would have found a nice boyfriend eventually and it would have been great if I could have done music with them or whatever. But those relationships are very complicated, especially when you're young. You know, I'm able to be in a band with Moose now because I'm 55 years old and we have children. So... I think that I would have finished my studies. I think I would have done reasonably well with that. And, you know, if I'd have gone off to do bands and God knows what and not got anywhere, um, then I think I would have done what I kind of did with Lush, which was, you know, I used that degree and I I got, you know, I became a sub-editor. You know, maybe I would have gone into publishing, maybe you know, whatever. Maybe I would have got involved in film, but actually making film rather than, you know, acting and stuff. What does it feel like? Does it feel like you find a band or does it feel like you find film? Interesting. Maybe I would have found film, you know, because I am, I can be quite techie actually. And I did like writing. And I do wonder if music was something that I ended up in, you know, so circumstantially, you know, there's so many just kind of like I loved film. I grew up absolutely loving film and I still do. So there is a chance that I would have got into, you know, writing or, or, or you know, <laughs> people always say directing, don't they? I'm not <laughs> sure I would have had the kind of like the the ego actually to to be a director but I can and I don't think I would have had the patience to be like someone who was you know an agent or someone on the real business side of it I think it would have been on a creative level writing would probably be the most obvious I mean I think there is a kind of world you know given that it's Hollywood and given that there are so many actors that clearly flood and people who want to be in that industry who flood into that city and shitloads of them who don't get anywhere, yeah. right? 
those would have been my people, right? Okay. <laughs> there are low-key theatre and, you know, there certainly would have been a thriving scene of people without going down the kind of, yes, I've got a contract with, you know, some huge studio. I can imagine that sort of more underbelly, you know, world of, of you know, indie filmmaking or whatever, would have probably really appealed to me, actually. Do you need to pay the bills? Is your is your mum helping you out? I mean, mum always helped me out, you know, before I was in the band. You know, once I was in the band, I was, I was fine. But, you know, also Britain had quite a strong sort of social support system. You know, I was on a thing called the Enterprise Allowance. Well, we all were, actually, apart from Emma. But, you know, you, you got you got unemployment benefit without having to sign on. You know, it was like a kind of ridiculous scheme. It was actually to get the unemployment figures down. You know what I mean? The government kind of like managed to sort of slip in this scheme and you just get paid basically to start your own business up. So I don't know. In America, I think that would have been, you know, trickier. But having said that, you know, I would have been immersed in a culture where, again, there's so many actors and people who were doing like bar work or or would get jobs as kind of runners on film things to make up the money. I mean, I don't think America at that time was particularly short of, you know, hiring opportunities, not like Britain where the unemployment was through the roof. I mean, it was just, there were no jobs. I think that, um, you know, I probably would have got some waitressing job or worked in a bar or whatever to supplement whatever the hell I was doing, you know, probably living with some bloke, you know, hopefully have some friends, maybe meet like some, you know, equivalent of Lena Dunham or something who's got real drive and ambition and, you know, needs me there to sort of, you know, help facilitate her genius or whatever, you know, and and eventually fall out with her and then make my own film. <laughs> Do you? Do you think that's what happens? I would have needed someone to be a catalyst to give me the confidence, I think. I, there's no way I could have kind of mingled in that crowd and just thought, I'm going to make my own film, I'm going to hire my own people, or I'm going to write my own TV series and pitch it. Or There's absolutely no way I would have been able to do that. I just know that about myself. So I think I would have needed to be involved in a group and, you know, had someone who was a, like a partner, you know, that, that um that made it fun actually as much as not just sort of leeching off their talent but you know actually someone who made it you know interesting and fun that we could be on this journey together and and you know there is a bit of an us against the world thing with me you know what I mean I'm aware of how hostile the bloody world is I know it is you need to find your allies and you need to find someone who will kind of accompany with you and sort of bounce off and and that you feel is is wanting this as much as you do you know so I would have had to find that equivalent and I'm just curious if we can think for a second about what you guys make what's the film or the show I was quite obsessed with comedy when I was young I forgot I kind of forgot to put this in the book because I was sort of you know oh god I've got to write about music like put some bloody music in there you know but actually I listened to as much comedy on vinyl records as well like I'd Billy Connolly, Woody Allen, um, all sorts I can't even remember the names like um, like old records that you could pick up for like 
a pittance in secondhand record shop. Bob Newhart, that was it. Like I had a Bob Newhart record that I used to play to death. Like, and I used to love like sort of you know a lot of American comedy. So I can't I can't imagine myself you know writing some. like very bleak give it despite my background right people always think even with this book people think oh god it sounds really dark and I'm like there's dark stuff in it but I'm not really the person who will sit there and mine the darkness and I don't want to say wallow in it because plenty of people need to work that crap out but I just I'm it just I pull away from the very 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 dark part of it you know I can see the humor the gallows humour in a lot of it. So if I was going to write something, it would have to be a bit funny because I think it has all that. And I felt that very much with, um, you know, the Michaela Cole thing that we will destroy you. Yes. You know, it's really dark in places, but it's it, she's not perfect. You know, she's problematic. It's really funny in bits, you know what I mean? And there's a lot of comedy in it. and. I can imagine that would be my sort of thing to aim for. (laughs) I love it. I love we found you a thing. We found you a thing you've made. Actually, you know what I want to do quickly before we're done? I just want to check in on your dad. How's your dad doing? Because you've been gone for a while. How's my dad doing? I do think my dad would have gone back to Hungary as he did. Okay. You know, I think he had enough of Britain. And and funny enough, my mum's about to move back to Japan. And I do think there's something about people, you know, returning home if they can. I think we would have maintained a good relationship because I loved him and I would not have let him go. And I do know that he loved me, Um, even, I think, even if he'd got another family. But I don't think he was ever going to. He was so unable to actually to settle in that way, you know, even if he found the most most tolerant woman on earth and actually I say that he did find tolerant women and even that didn't work out so I think he would have ended up probably very much as he did anyway and I'd have been going back to visit him in Hungary and having arguments with him and you know falling out and then falling back in again and I do think it would have ended up probably not madly dissimilar you know maybe I'd have been less angry with him because, you know, maybe I'd have got away from Nora and, you know, um, maybe I wouldn't have blamed him quite as much for not protecting me because he, it would have been taken in out of his hands, you know. And so I would have just had the kind of missing him and wanting him and being able to enjoy him. That's really interesting because did Nora's abuse, did it last all the way through? I can't remember. Like, did it last all the way through high school? Or sorry, no, no, no. I mean, the, the sexual abuse, I think, ended before I was even, you know, I think it ended sometime around the time I was in Windsor, so probably about nine oh, yeah. or something. Um, but the the emotional and the mental abuse never stopped. And she was, um, you know, she would not leave you alone, right? She just would be relentless. And if I tried to kind of just shut her out of my room she would come in if she if you know she would burst in she if I was trying to talk to friends she would pick up the other phone line and start cursing down the phone if she was you know you just could not get away from this person she was bored she was mad she was 
full of grudges and, you know, so I actually don't know what her problem was. But I had to just, I had to leave that house. Mm. You know, I left anyway, even though dad kept me. I left when I was 14, 15 and I moved into the school because I was having a nervous breakdown. I literally just could not deal with her in my face 24 hours a day, you know, planting her bullshit on me constantly. So, and that actually caused quite a rift with my dad. You know, he took it as some sort of betrayal that I, you know, moved out. Um, and I, I was angry that he didn't recognise it was because of Nora, not because of him, you know, because he wasn't bloody helping me with her. So in a funny way, yeah, maybe all of that would have been escaped, you know. Maybe he would have parked her in some home in Hungary because he wouldn't have been able to deal with her. And, you know, that bit would have tidied itself on its own. You know? <laughs> that, I mean, that is really interesting because essentially what we're saying is you wouldn't have then had to make the choice to leave when it got too hard. So your leaving would have been much more circumstantial. I'm just going to LA as opposed to I'm leaving this hellhole. At which point yeah. maybe you guys could have, the yeah, maybe it would have led to a slightly, um, what's the word? Maybe less fraught kind of, you know, scenario. Um, but I was going to ask if if LA feels like it remains home, or actually if if the if the lore of Britain or your dad in a Nora free universe um, feels like it pulls you back, or if you if you stay. I think once I'd made my bed, I probably would have stayed in it. Um, it's very difficult to tell because I was so hostile to LA. You know, not. Partly because, you know, I needed to sort of justify why I didn't move there. You know, I think that if I had been brought up there, I I have a feeling I would have moved to a smaller community, whether that's Santa Monica or at the time Silver Lake or somewhere that was considered a bit more happening than bloody Hollywood, you know, which just felt very arid and moneyed to me. And there was nothing there that I really engaged with. Um you know, circumstantially or deliberately. So, yeah, I would have, yeah, I would have probably moved to a smaller community. And I, I think once you find that, you know, I, I think I probably would have been quite happily and I would have rewritten, you know, my past and justified it. I would have said, well, it's great that I got out of Britain because I was, you know, pillar to post and actually Britain is quite grim and there are no jobs and, oh, it's just as well that I live somewhere where I'm with my writer friends and we're making a TV or we're making movies, you know, whatever. I couldn't possibly do that in Britain. <laughs> you know? Especially if you're somebody who's constantly weighing things up and is constantly kind of looking at things from all sides, there's a point at which you have to shut the door, otherwise you will lose your mind. Yeah, for sure. You know, and you just have to feel feel comfortable with where you're at now and feel like you can balance it and move on, you know. I'd moved so many times. I just don't, you know, I just, I mean, I literally live, you know, I could virtually see where I was brought up, you know what I mean? Like for all the touring and the this, that and the other, I live very close to Staverton Road where I grew up. I don't want to leave. I don't want, I, you're going to have to carry me out of this house in a box. You know what I mean? I'm done. Mm. found the people I want to be with. I found my community. That is fine. And I probably would have felt the same living in my fantasy Santa Monica community with my artsy friends with, with nicely straightened teeth. Do you do, do, you do the teeth? Do you get it done? 
Oh, for sure. I, I, I don't think. I, yeah, I think that probably would have been step one. That would have been even like trying to fit in. Even that first day at school, I'd have been like, right, I really need to get my teeth done. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> so I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna endure a lifetime of living in LA with people talking about my teeth the whole fucking time. <laughs> well, I'm glad, I'm glad we've been able to do that for you. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think that's a delightful place to stop. How about you? Yes, that was good fun. <laughs> Do you know what? Before we did this, you said, don't think about it. Don't think about it. Just let it happen. So I did. I did exactly that. So that was just, and that was quite, I, I'm not usually like that. I'm a real overthinker and I'd be taking notes and blah, blah, blah. So it was actually quite liberating. Oh, I'm so glad. I'm so glad. Thank you so much for joining me. <laughs> Thank you. One benefit I think we can gain from exploring an unlived life is the way in which visiting other possible paths can allow us access to not just experiences, but also feelings we might have had under another set of conditions. By the end of our discussion, it turned out that by following a path which took a major life decision out of her hands, Mickey then avoided another major crossroads, leaving her father's house and her abusive grandmother at the age of 14. In her other path, this seemed to relieve her of some of the anger she'd felt towards him, who she loved dearly, but also felt hadn't done quite enough to protect her. The realization came late, and so we didn't have much time to discuss it, but while Mickey definitely doesn't wallow in regret or dwell in the past, preferring, as she says, to get on with things, she did open herself to a potentially new feeling, which may well serve a function in the life she lives now. If you're a fan of My Unlived Life, I'd be so grateful if you'd help spread the word by rating, reviewing, subscribing, or following wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, by sharing on social media. Thank you so much for listening.